But one of the things that the the gorgeous ball does for most people is it really puts them in touch with their subtle sensing systems. And it heightens not just proprioception, which is body positional sense, but it heightens interoception, your ability to do physiological listening. Mm -hmm. And the physiological listening is a really big part of the body by breath book. Um, we uh, spend a huge chapter talking about the vagus nerve in that mm -hmm. in that chapter is, is right, rather in the book as well. Um, because when you're trying to induce a healing response in the body, you really want to train yourself to become aware of what is my body saying? How do I listen in? And not just to my pain, but also to the gurglings, to the subtle shifts of movement, movement of fluids, movement of air, the beating of the heart, you know, all of these different physiological acoustics that can be felt through your nervous system. And the gorgeous ball just happens to be like a tuner to that. It's like a seashell that's listening to all of these communications from your body and brings you into a greater interoceptive acuity, which can be very, very helpful for coordinate, not only coordination, like coordinating yourself physically, but also just knowing how I feel and then being able to entrain yourself emotionally with other people. Welcome to the HNL Movement Podcast, where everything is geared to leveling up your performance in activities, sports, and life. Join me in my professional journey as I share my knowledge and experiences while also learning from professionals, colleagues, clients, and you with one goal in mind, how to optimize human performance. This is the right place to learn how a multidimensional approach will sustain the performance and lifestyle you desire. Welcome back everyone to the HNL Movement Podcast. For all of my new listeners out there, you're in the right place to hear about everything that gears to optimizing human performance. All of my returning listeners, thank you again for tuning in. And if you haven't heard some of the previous episodes, you can check out the library of episodes on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Also, be sure to check out all of the free content on social media. You can find me at HNL Movement. Also, my YouTube channel, you can search for HNL Movement, see a lot of other content, see some of the previous video highlight clips from past guest interviews that matches what you've been listening to in audio format on the podcast episodes. And if you're finding a lot of value, getting some benefit from all of this content, please share with family, friends, coaches, teammates, really anyone that's looking for some resources to optimize their performance. And as always, it's great to hear some feedback from any of the listeners out there. So you can always contact me on social media or through my website or email me directly at andrew at hnlmovement.com. With all of that, we have a very exciting episode today. This has been a long time coming. Our schedules are so busy, but I'm glad that we finally got to connect. And we have none other than author and co-founder of Tune Up Fitness Worldwide, Jill Miller here on the podcast. There were so many great things that we got to talk about. We talked about her journey, all of her previous experiences, and how that has led up to what she is doing today. She talks about her past, her childhood, even how she started with a video workout tape that led into doing all these different activities, but at the same time, it all took a toll on her body. She eventually got into yoga and all of those practices that led seamlessly into the world of studying fascia, anatomy, body work, and diving into her own innovative practices with myofascial release. 
She is an author as well. She wrote the revolutionary, the role model book that explored these self myofascial release practices that have helped many people from all different backgrounds, everyone from elite athletes to those that are trying to get rid of restriction, tightness, and chronic pain. On top of that, be sure to listen all the way till the end of the episode. She talks about her new book, Body by Breath, coming out on February 28th. So be sure to check that out as well. There's a lot of things that she talks about with her past experiences that led up to this book that she wanted to write for a very long time. This is definitely a very exciting and informative episode. It was a pleasure to talk to Jill. We didn't cover everything, so we'll probably have to do a part two, but I hope you enjoy this episode. Listen in to all of the great gems and be sure to check out all of her resources on her social media channels, her YouTube channel, and her website, tuneupfitness.com. I'll make sure I put everything in the show notes, but other than that, I don't want to spoil anything else. Let's jump straight into this episode. Welcome back everyone to the HNL Movement Podcast. This episode has been a long time in the making, but I'm so, so glad that we can connect now. And this is a guest that I'm very excited to have on the podcast. So we have none other than Jill Miller, co-founder of Tune Up Fitness Worldwide. And we're going to dive into all of the things that she has done through the years and things that she still continues to do. For me personally, I've been following you for, as we talked off air a little bit, I've been following you since the first book came up, out. And it's something that I do to this day for myself my athletes, my clients. So there's a lot of things that we'll be able to share in this episode that I have practiced and also all of the great things that you have incorporated with many practitioners around the world. So anyway, other than that, thank you so much for joining me, Jill. I'm so excited to speak with you, Andrew, and to connect with you and your community. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's dive into this episode. And the first thing, let's hear a little bit about your backstory, your background. I know you were very active growing up. And all of the things that I'll kind just of stop you right you. there. I was not active growing up. That I was absolutely an inactive. Uh, I was inactive. I was overweight, and I really didn't like physical activity. It, oh, it okay. hurt. It was uncomfortable. Um, I played with my dogs. I read. I played with dolls. That was, and I had big thick glasses. So I'm just trying to draw you a picture. Um, I was that girl. I was picked last in all sports and um, <laughs> never could picture that this would be my life today. Ah, uh, I see. So when was it that you started finding yoga and all of these other things dealing with health, fitness, wellness? When was that in your lifespan? Yeah. When uh, one, so we lived in a, I, I grew up in a solar home uh, in a solar community off the grid in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the time it was one of two all solar communities on the planet. And I mean, I know that the solar industry and um, the solar movement has grown exponentially since then, but my, I would say that my parents were kind of pioneers in that way. And they were like, let's try this experiment. And as a kid, I mean, it's just beautiful growing up with uh, so much space around you and sky. Our home was built up into the earth, right? There was berm built up into it. But um, I was very inactive as a kid. And um, as I mentioned, like I was overweight. I also got teased for being overweight. And one day in sixth grade, my mother brought home the Jane Fonda workout. Mm -hmm. And she brought home the Raquel Welch yoga video. Now, these were beta videos. We didn't have cable because you know, we live so far out of town. Like you just didn't get cable out there. Mm -hmm. So um, we, she brought them home because she wanted to get in shape. And I started doing these tapes with her and 
you know, it was so uncoordinated and it was so uncomfortable and painful, but something about doing them lit me up. <laughs> I came into my body because of this video media and my mom gave up within about two weeks, but I became obsessed with these videos and I would come home and I would do them back to back every day after school. And really what ended up happening, you know, looking back, I'm, I'm now almost, I'll be 51 in a few weeks, but looking back now, I could see that that was really the beginning of an expression of some OCD tendencies. And I became completely obsessed with managing my body. And then that ended up spiraling into, uh, I mean, I already had some dysmorphia, but it ended up spiraling into an eating disorder. And for the next, well, 10 years, I was um, cycling between anorexia and bulimia, as well as I would say orthorexia, I was over-exercising. Mm -hmm. um, but the amazing thing, you know, sort of the, the, the lemonade or the silver lining of all that was that the movement practices started to embody me into my body. I wasn't no longer living in this head that was thinking about things, but it got me into my body. And then getting out of those eating disorders is really the the exploration of um, the last uh, 30 years of my life <laughs> and how, how you came to find my work through the role model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, thanks so much for sharing that. And I think there's a lot of people that struggle with these struggles, right? So you just sharing that and providing some light to your experiences I'm sure that will help to inspire or, you know, help people get through some of these obstacles, right? But even at sixth grade, that's still relatively young to be immersed or so attracted to these workout videos, right? So what was it do you think about the workout videos? Was it uh, how engaging or entertaining it was? Was it just that you felt like you were making progress? Or, you know, can you share a little bit of insight as to what do you think made it stick? That's such a great question, Andrew. I honestly have never been asked that question before. So I want to just applaud you as a podcaster. No one literally has ever asked me that question before. What what made it stick? I think I start to grow, grow the feeling of pleasure in my body. Mm -hmm. um, once you get past that initial uh, discomfort and soreness, there is something extremely elevating and we, we know the physiological cocktail that happens, but, you know, as a sixth grader yeah. and seventh grader, I didn't know um, how profound this was impacting my physiology and also helping to really relax me um, mm -hmm. and bring me out of what I didn't know was just unmitigated anxiety, unmitigated stress, um, had a lot of trauma in my family background. And this was my salve. This was how I was able to manage my mood to get a lift. And, um, you know, I'm sure there were, there were so many other amazing side effects, but I could really remember being a young girl, young woman, and knowing that I could count on if I did these videos, that I would feel better. Mm -hmm. And that was very, very important. In fact, the tagline of our company is live better in your body. But really, I think it's so much about, about feeling oneself and feeling better. So I would say that gave it the stick-to-itiveness. And then I, I did share with probably some family members that I really loved, you know, both of these things and especially the yoga. And somebody got me a subscription to Yoga Journal magazine by the time I was 14. And um, I was checking out books on yoga from the library and I was just really started to get extremely interested in um, not only the shapes of yoga, but the esoterics of it. And let me um, 
also just qualify that I'm also the daughter of a doctor. And so my father, who's an infectious disease specialist, um, you know, was not very keen on, um, you know, on some of my uh, explanations of, you know, of the yoga, because there's so many uh, sort of mystical anatomy um, aspects, which really, long story, even longer, I ended up creating a program called Yoga Tune-Up, which really was about trying to deconstruct uh, the myths of yoga and also bringing people into um, better biomechanical awareness of their body in the context of yoga, which is why it's called Yoga Tune-Up. So I started to get into, I would say, the scholarship of yoga, right, by checking out these books as a young tween and getting Yoga Journal magazine and really loving learning about the anatomy of it. And yeah, so I'd say that's probably what it ended up merging this interest of body and then the the science or or the pseudoscience that I was sort of digging into at the time. Yes, I like everything that you shared there. And, you know, like you alluded to, we know the all the physiological effects or side effects, positive effects of exercise, right, on mental, emotional health and all of that. But for you to kind of share that, you know, you might not have realized it at the time or in the moment, but you were experiencing a lot of that. And that probably contributed to, you know, you sticking with it and continuing on and on. Now, do you have any, your experiences, you know, everyone that goes through these experiences, there's a lot of lessons learned, but there's also a lot of things that, you know, you probably wish that you didn't have to learn or take that hard pill to swallow, right? But is there anything that you can share, I guess, with people that might be going through some type of eating disorder or Mm. body dysmorphia, you know, either currently or maybe have gone through it in the past, because, you know, like we all know it, it's a big part of your life and it kind of sticks with you. And there's a lot of residual things that you have to still overcome. Right. As you said, like you're still in the past 30 years, figuring out how to be comfortable and do all of the things that you want to do. So is there anything that you want to share to those people that might have experienced something similar to you as well? Sure. Um, One is that what ended up happening, you know, and this is what happens in addiction is that the, the exercise or whatever type of exercise I was using, whether it was dance, whether it was swimming, whether it was yoga, whether it was aerobics, uh, I used as a stick to beat myself up with. So it became an abusive relationship with these things that, also that sometimes gave me a lift and other times left me even more depleted and feeling even more uh, remorseful or angry at myself than before. What I would say to my friends out there, followers, listeners um, who are listening to this and who have found themselves in a spiral of not really understanding why they're so driven to overperform and to um, not be able to step off the wheel and reflect mm-hmm. about the process they're engaged in is that you're so much more than your body. You're so much more than your body. And you want to welcome all the aspects of you mm-hmm. into the home that is your body. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that really helped me to move beyond how I was treating myself was to try to look at myself as an infant, as a baby. And, you know, if I were, you know, you have to sort of split yourself into lots of different pieces to try to look at all these, these things, but like, would I make a baby eat a whole bag of potato chips? I had to, I had to really look at, 
um, the, the behaviors and let myself grieve that baby that wasn't getting love from herself or from her surroundings and um, try to be a better host for for mm-hmm. that sorrow, the grief, and all the feelings that I was running from. Mm-hmm. It's a very long process. And I know how difficult it is, especially when you're trying to stop. And I would definitely recommend making sure that you find at least one person or one being in your life that you can say all the things to. Yes. It's really, really important to find that trust. And so that trust might be in a pet and it might be in you know a neighbor. It might be in a therapist for me. It wasn't a therapist that helped. I ended up uh, using tools uh, to help sort of drain um, this gnawing, this never ending punishment. Um, and those tools really are the, the role model balls. And it's the, mm-hmm. the basis of so much of the work that I have put into the world. Yes. We'll get into all of the great work and the role model and the tuna balls in a second. But no, thanks for sharing all of that. And, you know, everyone with anything in your life, right? I think that's something to think about that. One, you're more than what your body is, right? Physically. And two, just taking care of that because that's like the host to allow you to do all of the things that you can do and help other people around you and all of those great things, right? Now, what I was getting into earlier. So what I know of you, right, is like you said, you started doing all of these different form of exercise, yoga, dance, whatever it was, right? So that's kind of what I know about you. And I think what a lot of people that read your books or follow your your content out there kind of know about you. So explain a little bit about that. How did after your high school years kind of into adulthood, right? How did all of these activities come into play, come into your life? And what was that like for you? Um, well, I started to do formal, more formal yoga studies, and I ended up starting to study massage. So I went to college uh, in Chicago, went to Northwestern University, and I had seen a flyer for a sort of a free event at a shiatsu school near the college campus. And I I had done some massage like in workshops and like drama workshops. And I really loved it. I used to massage my mom. She would pay me a penny a minute to massage her. Um, And I just, I really, I really liked it. I thought it was a a really cool thing. And so I went to this open house and I volunteered to be the, um, the demo girl in the, you know, at Uh the thing. And the teacher laid his hand on my abdomen. And it was one of the most astonishing connected experiences I'd ever had as a, as an organism, you know, just time stopped. And I also was able to feel right. And as you know, as I mentioned, I was bulimic. So there was, there was so much profound feeling of, of connection in that moment. And I knew that massage was going to held a key for me for healing. Mm -hmm. So I started studying massage uh, along while I was still very ill along with these other movement arts, dance, yoga, um, and so on. And as I started to heal, because that was part of the process of my my literal beginning to be able to heal and stop the behaviors and be able to um, grow, you know, grow through the emotions that I, I couldn't face, I ended up, as many as many artists do, I ended up teaching to earn money. Mm-hmm. So I started to teach yoga like at the park districts in Chicago and I was totally unqualified 
to do that. I also taught water aerobics at the YWCA, <laughs> but there was a natural teacher in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I did meet a mentor along the way, my mentor, Glenn Black, who was a great amalgamator of, uh, gosh, he's a, a yoga renegade, a yoga rogue, and a massage renegade and a massage rogue, just an amazing, amazing talented um, body-based practitioner, a meditation practitioner as well. I met him when I was working at the Omega Institute in upstate New York. So along with this massage tract, I started to learn about, you know, the alternative healing universe. I discovered this center in upstate New York called the Omega Institute. And I went and I worked there almost every summer during college and I would live in a tent and in exchange for living in the tent, I worked in their sundry store and sold uh-huh. like toothpaste to Deepak Chopra mm-hmm. and Ram Das and like all of these amazing people. At the time, it was called the self-help industry. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even know what it's called anymore, but like the <laughs> wellness universe. So uh-huh. it was all those top players in that space. But I got to also take classes while on campus. And I'm, that's where I met my teacher, Glenn. And Glenn really encouraged me to teach. You know, he saw that I, I had a teacher-ness about me. And, um, and I said, well, I don't know how to do that because really yoga teacher trainings were not, Mm. there was very few at the time. I mean, again, I'm, this is 1991, 92. Got it. Um, And yeah, yoga had not like exploded. um, Uh Like, I mean, it's just such a staple now everywhere. It was still kind of seen as a little bit weird back then. Um, Yeah. So that was a big part of how like sort of the 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 toolkit you can see starting it's all getting built in these formative years and then um there's a longer story but i won't tell all the long stories (laughs) but eventually when i started teaching uh, more formally on a regular basis in los angeles i was seeing in my classroom that people were really bypassing they were bypassing a lot of movements in order to either get into a shape or they didn't have the proprioceptive connection to to perceive their own movement within the context of a pose. Like if you take a look at, let's say, the vinyasa thing in, in yoga, right? The upward dog, downward dog. Mm-hmm. People were just skimming past parts of their shoulder completely, mm-hmm. parts that would really probably help support them. And they were like just always feeling injured. They were always complaining about body parts. And and I knew better. Like I had all this other anatomy background and this massage background. And I just started stopping people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let's stop. Let's do a little tune up here. And then I would mm-hmm. take them through joint exercises, um, articulations, uh, palpation. And then eventually I started bringing balls into the room because the palpating was, you know, I can't run around and touch everybody. So I taught them how to touch themselves. Mm-hmm. And eventually I came up with this uh, class format called yoga tune up where people are able to massage themselves to improve their proprioception, their mobility, and unbelievably change their pain. Yes. Yes. There's so many great things that you, you shared with so many athletes, clients, practitioners, everyone. And talking about that, so you had the massage and anatomy background, right? In college, were you studying something related to exercise science or something like that? Not at all. <laughs> this, is, this is all like your passion. This is what. This is all passion. my side hustle study, yes. right? This is all the stuff that I'm like I'm really interested. Mm-hmm. Having had a dad who was a you know a doctor and real research nerd, I think that was a, really served me because he would 
you know, he would want to know why. If I would say something, mm-hmm. he could just slice it and dice it. And I was just left with mm, just defenseless because I just didn't know enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't, I don't like that feeling. <laughs> yes. yes. Um. So yeah, in college, I was on uh, the performance track. So I, I had a major called performance studies. Mm-hmm. And so I was deconstructing narratives. I was uh, creating very edgy performance art type of productions. I was a dancer, um, but I studied the art of production. And so you can probably see that in all of my output in in media, as well as the book work. I really like to be an effective communicator. And so there are other production elements that are very helpful for being an effective communicator. But really the bottom line is it comes down to being an an effective and authentic communicator. And so um, that's really what I studied in college, never intending to, again, never intending to, number one, be an author or number two, (laughs) to be a teacher. That was never my intention. I was really hoping that I could make it in Hollywood. That's the Mm -hmm. honest truth. And I've got, you know, it's got a few movies under my belt, but nothing (laughs) that ever like exploded me out the gate. No, that it's interesting because I always say this with all of our guests, all of the experiences that you've had, they come together in the unique path that you're going to navigate through in the future in your career. And even like how you said, your, your dad, right. Being a researcher, being a medical doctor and asking you why that really instilled in you to, you know, uncover the, the truths or the evidence or whatever it is to explain why is this working? But also you had the experience and the background of doing all these activities to try to explore and see, is this going to work, you know, anecdotally too, to kind of match everything up. So I love that. Now let's talk about as you started to progress more and more, you started to bring in these, what were the first like balls that you were bringing into class? Were they just like sports type of balls, lacrosse balls, tennis balls, whatever? Or how did that, I guess, grow into, okay, I'm actually incorporating this into a yoga tune-up class right now. And then how did that grow as the years went on? Yes. So when, so first we have to talk about the first tool I used in classrooms was a rolled up towel on the abdomen. And let me backtrack to to explain why that happened. Um, so I was doing Pilates uh, as part of the dance program and I was never sore when we did Pilates. My roommate who was pre-med, I, she, I managed to get her into classes. She was always sore. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't understand why, why she wasn't sore. But then I realized, oh, I'm throwing up every, you know, three days a week and I'm so disconnected from my core. That's mm-hmm. why I'm not sore because I'm completely avoiding it. I'm bypassing it. I'm using my limbs. Right. You come across this all the time with your athletes. I know you do. Um, And so there was a profound emotional disconnection from my actual abdomen. And the fact that I didn't get sore and my roommate did, I knew that that (laughs) was something there, there. So I asked um, a yoga teacher at the time, like I was doing yoga in the city, uh, taking the train in. I said, said to this teacher, look, I am the story I just told you, I'm not getting sore. I am bulimic and I'm, I'm wondering if it's connected. And so she handed me this prop that they used in the Iyengar yoga space at the time, which was a, looked like a hamburger bun and it was filled with sand. And this hamburger bun shaped tool, she said, lay down, lay it, place on your belly and lay face down, prone yourself and just breathe into it. And I did, and it was absolutely agonizing. It was so painful my viscera started screaming at me and I finally felt 
all of what I had been mm-hmm. stuffing yeah. and running from, right? So I had this you know, visceral cry and it allowed me to really cry. It allowed mm-hmm. me to process. And I, I just felt immediately like this is the ticket because it reminded me also of when that teacher laid his hand on my abdomen. Mm-hmm. So there's something so primal about this, um, this center, right? In, uh, uh, in in shiatsu, we call it the hara, right? Hara, the center of of being. So I wanted to really go into this pain and mm-hmm. not run from it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so every morning I would wake up, I'd go to the bathroom, drink some water, and I'd roll up a ham towel and I'd mold it into the similar shape as that hamburger bun. And I would lay down and I would breathe and I would move it onto different parts of my abdomen. Mm-hmm. Every single day, I was so disciplined. And my roommate is asleep because she's pre-med. So she she went to bed at 3 a.m. So she's asleep in the top bunk. And I'm there doing my practice yeah. every single day for, oh my gosh, for forever. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I found other another tool to do that better. And that was this squishy uh, rubber ball. Mm-hmm. But I brought the towel practice into a yoga classroom. I have to try to calculate it probably 11 years after I started doing it on myself. So I had a lot of my own self uh, accrued evidence um, before I sprung it on anybody else because it was weird. First Uh of all, people weren't doing massage in classrooms, in yoga classrooms. I mean, that was such a disruptive thing for me to do. But now self-myofascial release is such a global trend and there's no stopping it. And I, I like to think that I paid a really Oh, in yes. part in you know in opening that door um to to that for people for for so many different reasons uh, why we do it so that was um that was the first tool i used were these towels and i remember i, I went to target and i bought i still have a bunch of them and <laughs> we use them in our house now but we've moved we've moved on so i've innovated uh, i discovered the squish ball which is mm-hmm. um similar to a pilates ball and then my husband is my business partner um, we created what we call the gorgeous ball which has a, a sticky skin-like surface um and it's this beautiful uh, uh iris color and we also have graphite so there's like a lavender color and like a black color um for your color preference and then you fill it with your own air and you use this tool to do your own self-myofascial release and all different types of pressure applications so that was the first tool and then the second tool i used was i i had used tennis balls but i thought like there's probably something better. And I found the pinky ball, which is, I think, how a lot of people discover the pinky ball through mm-hmm. dance. I discovered through my dance teacher uh, was using tennis balls. And then I, I guess I just went to a, a store and was looking at different balls. I found the pinky ball. And then uh, when I was dating my now husband, he saw that and he was like, well, you should you should get balls on logo than yourself. You shouldn't like. <laughs> and so we did the research and, you know, long story short, we now have a fleet of different size balls. And we have this amazing springy, grippy rubber. And um, yeah, people use them to do their own self-care and they have become their own role models. It's so interesting to hear the story behind it because yes, the gorgeous ball, there's nothing else like it. And the first time that I went through your book and I put it down, yes, exactly. It's it's got a a deflated one behind my back for support in the chair. Yes. And there's so many uses for that. And I'll let you dive into that in a second, but also the, all of the other different sizes of your massage balls, your yoga tuna balls. That is so versatile. And yes, there's many tools that you can use for myofascial release, right? 
But just having a ball versus a foam roll, it's way more portable, way more compact. You can get into all of these different areas that you can't do with a foam roll. I mean, you even do things for your face, right? You can't put a foam roll to your face. It's not going to be very effective, right? Hip musculature, rotator cuff areas, all of these areas, like, I mean, a foam roll is good if you want to use that. It's a tool, right? But I think every tool has its limitations. And that's where the ball, it's something that all of my athletes have in their bags, they travel with it, all of those things. So it's just a great tool. And I'm glad that you came across that. Now, when we were putting this in all of your class routines, right? Mm-hmm. What was that experience like for you? Because you had all of these years of using it personally, right? And maybe with loved ones, close ones. But what was it like as you started to introduce this and teach it to all of these other people? Wow. So I you're, I love your questions. You have so many like beginning questions that nobody's ever asked me because you know it was so scary Mm -hmm. to bring this bag of balls into a classroom and tell people to try this experiment that nobody else had done except for me and maybe my private clients who i would Mm. have done this but i hadn't done it on scale i hadn't done it on mass and like literally i had to have the balls to say all right everybody take this ball and stick it underneath your left heel or Mm -hmm. place it alongside your spine right here in this groove here or let's try to map the shoulder let first let me teach you about the bony landmarks of the shoulder so you know where you're going Mm -hmm. the balls forced me to get so clear with my students on anatomical landmarks um, soft tissue and also distinguishing different levels of touch pain feedback, all those things. I mean, it became this incredible new vocabulary that I got to build with them through the language of touch and the language of self-touch. And then, and then all the other emotional layers that that brings in, right? The lack of touch that we have in our society and the lack of touch we had as, you know, growing up or the avoidance that we have of certain body parts and what happens when we start to move in there with awareness and with touch. So um, it was, you know, weird for them. And it was, daring for me but i i you know thank god i studied performance studies because performance studies really taught me a lot about the boldness of creativity and how to set up parameters so that even where it feels extremely risky you have guard there are some guardrails that you've set up and to have the conviction of you know i've tried it i've run this experiment i just haven't done it on 25 people in one room but you're, you're okay. You're in good hands. But then you start to see the variability in the room. You start to see, oh my gosh, there's so much anatomy in here. It's not like, it's certainly not the skeleton model that I just showed you or that I have in my head. Uh-huh. You know, it's all of these lived experiences. And, um, and that's that to me, that's where it gets so interesting is that like on the fly, you're having to uh, modify and create variations, progressions, regressions all over the place. And those things are teaching you so much. And all of a sudden you have 90 things that you can do with a shoulder other than like you thought you had four things, but then you start to see it, it acting out on all these different bodies. And to me, like I always go into my work and I, I work with three mindsets. One is I'm a student of my body. So I always try to be here. I'm trying to be in my body when I'm working. I'm a student of my body. Two, I'm a student of what I teach. Mm-hmm. So I, I never don't know everything about what I'm teaching. I know a lot about what I'm teaching, but mm-hmm. I'm always open to learning from what I'm teaching. So I'm a student of my body. I'm a student of what I teach. And the third uh, mindset or maxim that I work with is I study my students. Mm-hmm. 
I study my students because they are going to interpret through their lens the, 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 the best shot that I have at you know the, my communication. And so their interpretation, it, it has to inform me. So I'm a student of my body, a student of what I teach, I study my students. And if I'm always working with those three levels, then I'm going to have a transformative teaching ex- experience. And with the therapy balls, you got to know a lot yes. going in. Like I cannot not know about nerves. I cannot not know mm-hmm. about fascia. I cannot know not know about muscles. I cannot not know about pain. I cannot know, know about vasculature. I cannot not know about fluids, um, about bones. There's it, it forced me to become a chronic and lifelong learner, which I already was, but I love that I get to constantly be in a learning space from it. So it, it, it gave me, it fed my hunger, right? That's what started to happen when I started to bring this into the room. And my hunger, I think was contagious. And my students were like, this is cool. Ow, ow, what? ow that hurts. I'm like, okay, it doesn't have to hurt to work. Let's figure out how to tamper this reactivity. Let's figure out uh, how to ameliorate and attenuate and all the stuff. So that's, um, it's just, I'm just still growing with it. And then anyway, lots more to say about that. No, there's a lot of things and there's a lot of follow-up questions and ways that we can go off of that. But the one thing I like how you said that you're continuing to learn because like for all of us, right? There's, there's infinite amount of information that we don't know out there, right? So it's just mm-hmm. trying to keep building these foundation and building blocks so that we can learn more and hopefully apply it to more other individuals and teach other people too. So I like those three things that you shared. Also, we're going to touch upon this later is that it doesn't have to hurt to work because mm-hmm. that is something that I implement from day one and, you know, just teaching them how to actually get some effective response instead of just trying to dig and smash your muscle and your tissues and all of that. But Mm -hmm. before we get into that, I like how you said that you had to learn about all of these things about anatomy, physiology, you know, what kinds of effects are you having on tissues, right? So at this time, give us a little timeline. Were you, were you teaching a lot more and not doing as much of that volume yourself? Or were you still doing the big volume of training activities yourself and teaching at the same time. And when was this around? Was this like in the 2000s now, mid 2000s? Um, so I started teaching full time right after 9-11. So 9-11 mm-hmm. was the pivot point for me mm-hmm. in in terms of path life path. Mm-hmm. Um, after 9-11, I wanted to make sure I was contributing to the world. Mm-hmm. And this was the path, like, because it was something that kept me so curious. So I I stopped acting. I stopped pursuing auditions. I, you know, I was out in LA. I had an agent. I just stopped cold Turkey. Um, I did do a a dance, a couple of dance shows after that, but they were just for joy. They weren't for, to get another job. They were just for joy. And uh, so I, yeah, I started teaching full time and I was always training. I was always trying to learn as much as I could. I I mean, I have a huge, you can't see it because my zoom is blurred out, but I have bookcases all over this room, just full of, of texts um, about the body. So if I couldn't get to a training or if I couldn't afford a training, I certainly was digging into um, literature. This is also really before YouTube learning. So there was like, you didn't have, you didn't yeah. have that <laughs> um, at all. And I, I was very, I, one of the things I was very, very fortunate because my mother at the time worked for JetBlue Air, airlines. And this is also, by the way, before Facebook. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> There's like so many things yes. here. Uh-huh. My mom worked for JetBlue and she was able to get me something called buddy passes. So mm-hmm. you, if you work for an airline, your relatives can ride for free if there's an empty seat. It's an amazing blessing. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I, I start, I start taking these workshops because I had come up with a slew of workshops that centered around, um, you know, my perspective, take it on the road and mm-hmm. I can make it no risk to these studios where JetBlue flies. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, JetBlue flew from like LA, they flew from Long Beach. They At the time, just Long Beach, not LA, but I would drive down to Long Beach and I could get on a plane and go to Boston. I could get on a plane and go to New York for free. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to studios in those areas and some people took a chance on me. Yes. And so I was able to start developing a national following because there was no risk. There was no expense for travel. Mm-hmm. I would stay at friends' houses mm-hmm. and pack the house. I mean, I would get unbelievable turnout and then the word of mouth would grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned, you know, this is how I learned about marketing and collecting emails and, and this and that. So um, I, you know, I just started to build goodwill in the industry in that way. Oh my God, I can't remember your question. What was the question? No, no problem. And then, yeah, so that gives a little bit about the timeline and were you still training super intensely and also teaching or how did that? Always, always. Always. I I didn't know enough Mm -hmm. because people would come to your classroom and they would have all kinds of problems (laughs) and you're like, I never heard of that. Or uh, I don't know why you're, why it's hurting when you're doing this or that. So there was never a time when I wasn't studying, but um, Mm -hmm. again, it wasn't always with other other formal programs. Sometimes it was an inform, um, informal workshop that I attended. Um, a lot of literature, a lot of co- consults with other physical therapists. You know, building my network of of other professionals, building this amazing interprofessional community that I that I just live in now. It's amazing. So that was always always a pursuit. Yes, yes. And you know, I can only imagine every year, right? Because you were implementing these techniques on so many different individuals you're starting to see all of these different effects that it was having right so as the year started to grow obviously your expertise and your knowledge and your database was growing too when was it that you actually started thinking i'm gonna write a book make some dvds and do those kind of things like around when was that after you know 9 11 early 2000s area i i made the first dvd it was called Yoga Tune Up. Mm-hmm. I made it, I think it was in 2003 or 2004. Okay. So a colleague of mine was working, he was trying to put together a TV show about yoga teachers. I think it was called Great Yoga Teachers. Mm-hmm. And I was helping him to gather local yoga teachers and 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 come in and, and do these routines, their own routines, and he would film them. And then he was like, oh, now it's, now it's your turn, Jill. Do you want to, do you want to do a routine and I'll film it for you and I'll give you the DVD as a gift for helping, helping this, helping me out. And I was like, yeah, actually, you know what? My mom has shoulder problems. So I, uh, I want to make her a video for Mm. Hanukkah. (laughs) I want to make her a, you know, make her a holiday gift. And so I, I introduced myself. I, you know, this is Jill and this is a shoulder tune up. And I did a, like an 11 minute video. All right. And then he gave me the hard DVD. I had a friend of mine help me put an image on it. And then I, I realized, you know, I realized like there was a good little lesson there that yes. anybody could use. And so I made this shoulder tune-up DVD and I must've said, this is a yoga tune-up somewhere in the video. And that's where the, the word came out. Hmm. And um, I ended up trademarking yoga tune-up because I thought mm-hmm. it was such a great uh, mm-hmm. uh, brand name. And that was a whole other nightmare. 
of expensiveness yes. with lawyers and oh yes. yuck. Yes. Okay. So um I made this DVD around 2004 okay. and I duplicated it and started to sell these DVDs. And then I had, then another friend had a camera and I made ultimately I made eight others. So I had these nine set of okay. DVDs that I had created. I totally lost track of your question again, Andrew. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. Oh my no gosh. worries. And then so you created these DVDs. And when was it that you started thinking oh, about the book. Them? Oh, look? Yeah. Okay. Ah, oh my gosh. You're asking a lot of history <laughs> questions. All right. The book. So we have to fast forward about eight years. So I become friends with Kelly Starrett. Yes. Kelly Starrett is the author of a book called, if you haven't heard of it, yes. Becoming a Supple Leopard. Yes. Uh, he has a company called The Ready State, formerly Mobility Wad, mm -hmm. with his wife, Juliet. Mm -hmm. And I was introduced to him through a yoga student of mine who I met on one of these New York trips when I was you know, getting free airlines and managing to teach in cool yoga studios all over New York City. And this guy came up to me. He was like, he's like wow, you're teaching really interesting. It's exactly like... <laughs> Uh, this guy, Supple Leopard. And I'm like, yeah. what? <laughs> Supple Leopard, Kelly Starrett. And like, I don't know anything about the CrossFit space, Andrew. Yes. I mean, I am in the yoga world. <laughs> I am like completely siloed in the yoga space. No idea what's happening outside of like yoga and massage. Mm -hmm. And so he does a Facebook introduction to us. I don't know, it's 2010 or 11. Mm -hmm. And um, long story short, Kelly's like, come on up. Come, come up to San Francisco. Let's make some mm -hmm. videos together. Uh -huh. And so I did a number of videos with him on Mobility Wad, and they people went bananas over what we did together. And um, a few months later, he invited me to be a presenter on a webinar that he did on a platform called Creative Live. So mm -hmm. he taught his entire Mobility Wad seminars, Mobility, I can't remember what it was called at the time. But anyway, it was a two-day seminar on live, live streaming. He got that gig because Tim Ferriss had he had been on Tim Ferriss's webinar. Mm. So like there was this complete like legend uh <laughs> hand-me-down thing happening. So now Kelly had this opportunity to work on this platform that Tim had opened up to him. And I did two sessions. I did a session on breath and I did a session on fascia. And by the way, some of the other guests on the on his show were my dear friend Brian McKenzie and I'm blanking on some other people's names right now. <laughs> forgive me. But it was like it was a breakthrough moment. And I got off stage after teaching about either breath or fascia. I can't remember which segment, but there was with, within hours of that, there was an email in my inbox and it was from Victory Belt, the publishers of Becoming right. a Supple Leopard, mm -hmm. as well as uh, Rebuilding Milo. Like that's their, their most recent, like mega hit, the Aaron yes. Horshig of, of, of Squat University. Yes. And there was an email from them and it said, we'd like to publish your book. Mm -hmm. You know, hi, we're Victory Belt. Saw you on on Kelly's thing. We'd like to publish your book. Mm -hmm. I was like, what book? I don't have a book. Yes. They're like, write one. We'll publish it. Yes. Yes. So by the way, this does not happen in the real world. Y'all. Yeah. <laughs> this is not how publishing happens. This was somebody put a golden goose egg in my hands. Mm. And so I, I wanted to write a book about my approach to core work and breath work. That's the book I wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And I knew that breath was not trending back in, it was in the yoga space. I mean, we're always uh -huh. breathing in the yoga space. Uh -huh. It's always trending there. But in the greater space, breath really was not a buzz yet. Mm -hmm. And 
And so this is, I think, 2011. And so I decided that I, I really should probably get my approach to self-myofascial release out, self-myofascial release out there. Mm-hmm. And I pitched them that concept. And they're like, done, we're, we're in, whatever you want to write, write it. And then I had to you know, figure out a, uh, a title and I came up with this, the role model spelled uh-huh. R-O-L-L. And um, it's now been translated into uh, five languages. It's an international bestseller. And uh, it's just, it's just been an amazing, amazing journey. And then as soon as, literally, as soon as I turned it in, they're like, okay, what's your next book? And it's like, now I want to write the breath book. Got it. Which took me eight years. And I just turned that in a couple of weeks ago. And, or actually last week it went to print body by breath will be out February 28th. So I finally um, was able to get this other uh, book out of my body, which is the one that's been really eating me alive since I was a child, um, dealing with this, you know, eating disorder and a fascination with mm-hmm. with breath and body and embodiment. Yes. Well, congrats on the second book being released. Even sharing that, that gives so much context to what happened, you know, and that role model book, the pictures, the explanation, everything was very well done. I think as a practitioner myself, I read that and I was like, this is, there's a lot of, you know, anecdotal evidence, but also real evidence. And there's a lot of scientific evidence and everything. So it was a great book that to me, it made an impact on my career too. And a lot of athletes. Yes. And it makes sense now that I'm so excited to hear or read your new book because yes, as we all know, breathing, that's, it has so much influences on everything in our body, right? So before we get into that, I know I'm keeping you a little long and we're both super busy, but let's talk a little bit about some of the key takeaways from the role model and what you do with myofascial release. Like for someone that maybe they're coming across your content for the first time, what is kind of the take-home message? What are some big tips that you can give them about self-myofascial release? I want to start by saying that during the writing of Body by Breath, I had to take a year off. First of all, I had writer's block. I also had two children. I had a hip, I had a hip replacement. There were so many things that took me out of writing um, Body by Breath. Um, but one of the things that took me out was I was approached by an editor and a publishing company to dive into the literature on self-myofascial release and create a narrative review in a medical textbook called Fascia Function and Medical Applications. So this is um, the first kind of book of its kind that is directed towards clinicians so that they can understand all aspects of fascia. And they wanted me to create, uh, or they wanted me to look at the the literature on self-myofascial release. Okay, so just put a peg in that. So the role model, I wrote the role model when there was, and I will say it out loud, the scant evidence mm-hmm. yes. about self-myofascial release. Yes. And what I had to do in order to sort of prove my methodology or to, um, um, be able to, you know, pr- present a methodology that had a leg to stand on was draw similarities from massage yep. or use anecdotes, like you said, testimonials from people who have um, gone through their own practice of self myofascial release using my approach and my tools and um, come out on the other side with, you know, rem- remarkable improvements in their health, their well being, their psychological state, all the things. You know, for, I mean, the big takeaway. <laughs> If I just answer your question, that'd be nice. The big takeaway is that, you know, you can be your first line self-care, healthcare provider. You can own your healing. And it's really, really simple. You can roll with no knowledge of your anatomy 
and actually get a pretty good result. Yes. Knowing a little bit more, you can probably get an even better result. Yes. We didn't know in when I was writing the book. So when I was writing the book between 2012 and when it was published in 2014, as I said, there was there was scant evidence. Mm-hmm. And when David Lozondak gave me this task of writing this chapter, I was nervous. I was nervous that some of the claims I had made and some of the ob- observances I've had might be proven false when I actually go into all the literature. I mean, I'd read a lot of mm-hmm. the literature in the years that followed, but I haven't read everything. Mm-hmm. I still haven't read everything. I mean, like I read a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, but also we're at the stage now where there's two meta-analyses and three mm-hmm. systematic reviews. So mm-hmm. we're in a pretty cool place, even though there's still scant amounts of research and that research on self-myofascial release, the first piece of published uh, peer-reviewed stuff came out 1991. So we're in a 30, we're only 30 years old here yes. mm-hmm. in tool science, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So like, let's give ourselves a break. We have a lot ahead that we're going to be learning. Yes. Um, but you know, insurance companies aren't covering myofascial release tools. Mm-hmm. So there's not so much motivation for, for the research to really populate. Okay. So in going into the evidence, I was really, really ultimately happy because I learned so much more than I knew ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And I was really validated by mm-hmm. much of what I came across. Nothing that I had claimed was contradicted. Mm-hmm. And um, and now I actually had these numbers of of evidence that I can say, yes, self-myofascial release. By the way, there is contradictory evidence. And I, and I, and I do think that the contradictory evidence has to do with hardness and it has mm-hmm. to do with application. But that's something that's like a whole other podcast. Yeah. And we can talk about the chapter on another podcast at some, at some point. Um, but self-myofascial release improves range of motion. So it increases mobility. It decreases pain. It increases surprisingly torque. So when you roll something, you actually get more force production from the muscle that you roll. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps with all sorts of parasympathetic features. It chills you out. It relaxes you. It improves the, the viscosity of your vasculature, right? It releases nitric oxide. It, uh, it, what else does it do? Oh, it helps with mental health, yes. with, your, with your mental health. Um, there's a connection between emotional affect and rolling. Mm-hmm. So we, 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 we actually know a lot. It prepares you for performance, but it also helps downregulate you so that you can recover more efficiently um, and turn over a better night's sleep thereafter. So there, there are so many things that I'm so happy that are there in the evidence and that we can like, you know, roll around and get excited about. Yes. You you sent me a copy of that chapter, so I read it was yes, really was really well written, and I think the thing for people to take away is that there's more of a there's more than just a mechanical improvement or positive effect, right? Like you said, the autonomic nervous system, like you can downregulate yourself. I think that's huge, especially when you're trying to promote recovery, trying to you know help with sleep, mood, emotion, all of those types of things. So there's a lot of new evidence that's coming out. Um, A lot of it, like you said, is based off of massage or other techniques. But now we're starting to see how does this apply to self-myofascial release, some of these other techniques that were not only for performance, but just health and wellness in general. So I like that you share all of these types of things, right? Let's get into, not to fast forward a little bit, but I want to cover, let's get into how did you 
What made you choose the texture, the softness, the density of the balls? I, I know from everything that I've read, but if you can share with some of the listeners, especially when it comes to fascia, right? Because mm-hmm. there's, I would say in the last 10 to 15 years, the amount of fascial research has just exploded. There's still a lot of unknowns, but we know a lot more than we did a decade ago. So that's one big thing, especially with your tuna balls, right? The texture of it, it can grip your skin, can have an influence on your fascia. So share a little bit about that. Like, how did you figure out this is the the product that I want to create that I think will have the biggest impact on everybody? Well, soft is superior Mm -hmm. as it relates to uh, palpation into the the medium of human flesh. Uh, we are a nervous system that's just coated with all sorts of other structures. And no matter where you touch in the body, you're touching the brain and you're touching the body's defense system. Mm-hmm. And you know, a body generally doesn't want to be poked. <laughs> a body generally doesn't want to be nudged. <laughs> it doesn't want to be prodded. And it has its way of letting you know that. And that the way of letting you know that is through contractions, mm-hmm. right? Is through sympathetic muscle bracing. Yes. And so you need to have something that can disarm that muscle bracing response that can let the nervous system know that you're at ease. And so that at easeness comes from inducing pressure that's tolerable. No, that's a scale. I mean, there are some people that really hard, firm pressure puts them at ease. Mm-hmm. For other, I don't think that's most people. Yes, the yes. general population, it's not most people. Mm-hmm. That is like sort of a very rare segment of people who are probably uh, very well-trained to mm-hmm. receive touch, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, so let's just put that category aside. But in general population, most bodies are going to have a reflexive stand back attitude. And it's not conscious. They're not trying to to not receive the thing. And so we have to find tools that we can, our body can work with instead of work against. Mm-hmm. As I said in the beginning, it doesn't have to hurt to work. We're not trying to create more pain in order to get rid of the pain that's there. The softer tools are helpful pain locators because they are not generating pinching, bruising, overpressuring. So a softer tool, a compliant tool, a tool that can uh, nuzzle, that a bony prominence can nuzzle into rather than um, grind up against. Mm-hmm. You think about using uh, lacrosse balls along the laminal groove versus using um, balls that have some gush within mm-hmm. the laminal groove and allowing the facet joints and allowing bony prominences, prominences to dock in. Mm-hmm. So it's really trying to find a tool that conforms to your form. Mm-hmm. And again, we're, we, we have a, a scalability of people that are extremely tender touch into those people that are like, no hard touch soothes me. Um, but I think most of us fall more in the middle and also more towards that, that gentler touch that can be adjusted for pressure is, is ideal. I love working with people in pain. I mean, I love working with people who are dealing with chronic pain or who have long-term conditions and being able to give those people the power of a non-medicated 
substance to be able to alter mechanics, to alter feeling, and to alter confidence. I mean, there's nothing like that. If you can get that without a pill, without having chemical side effects, but you're just actually inducing other physiological beneficial side effects that can eventually turn over, can create a remodel of the tissue, right? And then your ability to then retrain yourself to keep pain a little bit further away from you through being able to activate muscles correctly, activate joints correctly, and so on. I think I just rambled for a very long time. No, there's um, so many things that we could cover and I know we're running out of time. So uh, I just have a couple more brief questions, but I do want to tell people, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So go check out all of your content. I'll put everything in the show notes. You'll share it at the end. Go check out the book, The Role Model, because it's very well written. There's a lot of pictures. Pictures are super high quality and you can easily kind of at least get a good idea as to what you're doing. And of course, if you pair with a practitioner or someone that you can work with, then you'll get even more instruction, right? So we can't cover all of the things in the book, but go pick it up and go try some of these techniques for yourself. I do want to bridge into the last few questions. So the gorgeous ball, that is kind of going into your body by breath book, right? Absolutely. And the gorgeous ball, I think that's such a unique tool. And There's so many people for, like you said, even myself included, when I first laid on the gorgeous ball, I was like, there has been nothing that has done this type of like technique or myofascial release on my abdomen, my viscera, all those fascial layers, right? Because how do we get that? There's no other way other than your towel or something that actually pushes into your abdomen. So talk a little bit about the gorgeous ball, whatever you want to share, and let's lead into what can we expect with the Body by Breath book? Yes. The gorgeous Ball is a listening device for your physiology. It contains air from your own body. Mm-hmm. It's encapsulated, right? It's a sphere. Mm-hmm. It is, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, a sort of thin, grippy skin, and it's air-filled, and you can decide how much air you want in there. And that really is about your pressure tolerance as mm-hmm. as well. And it, it's a really great tool to use all over your trunk. So mm-hmm. you can use it on your rib cage. You can use it on your lateral abdomen, anterior abdomen, pelvic floor, thoracolumbar fascia. That is, you know, the, the mechanics of your low back. We use it on the neck and throat, do uh, releases there. And it's a great feedback tool to let you know about number one, your state, because <laughs> it's really, it's going to tell you a lot about your stress levels. Mm-hmm. It's also going to tell you about where your breath tends to live in your body. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it gives you the ability to feel your range of respiration. So we lay down or we lean against a wall or uh, mm-hmm. You can do this in a chair. We have people doing it with like they hug it if they have you know very delicate bones. Um, but it's it's there like a like a rubber barnacle to <laughs> always give you a give and take, a feedback about how your body is moving in the context of of breathing. And of course, we use it for tissue shear as well. You can pivot your body around the ball, and the ball will latch into your tissue and create a stretch <laughs> in and amongst the the skin, the superficial fascia, deep fascia, multiple muscle layers, as well as the position of bones. So it's a really multi-use prop in terms of self-myofascial release feedback. Mm -hmm. I mean, we also use it for 
other awareness exercises in different parts of the body. I'll deflate it completely. And because it's so great for shear, I'll use it on my ankle retinacula or wrist retinacula, just like you would use like a kind of like a voodoo floss, but not, I mean, it's not because you're not wrapping and wrapping. So Mm -hmm. I'll take two hands and, and, and show different uh, ways of using it for uh, really great fascial shear work. Let's see, what else do you do with the gorgeous ball? We use the gorgeous ball also for inspiratory, mm-hmm. inspiratory, excuse me, expiratory muscle training. Mm-hmm. So it comes with a straw and we'll deflate the gorgeous ball and we'll do different mm-hmm. exercises where you're uh, using your exhalation muscles to um, exhale into the ball and it gives you resistance with that. Mm-hmm. So it's this very sort of cheap way of getting resistance <laughs> muscle training, uh, resistance muscle training through uh, respiration. But one of the things that the the gorgeous ball does for most people is it really puts them in touch with their subtle sensing systems. And it heightens not just proprioception, which is body positional sense, but it heightens interoception, your ability to do physiological listening. And the physiological listening is a really big part of the body by breath book. Um, we uh, spend a huge chapter talking about the vagus nerve in that mm-hmm. in that chapter is, is right, rather in the book as well. Um, because when you're trying to induce a healing response in the body, you really want to train yourself to become aware of what is my body saying? How do I listen in? And not just to my pain, but also to the gurglings, to the subtle shifts of movement, movement of fluids, movement of air, the beating of the heart. You know, all of these different physiological acoustics that can be felt through your nervous system. And the gorgeous ball just happens to be like a tuner to that. It's like a seashell that's listening to all of these communications from your body and brings you into a greater interoceptive acuity, which can be very, very helpful for coordinate, not only coordination, like coordinating yourself physically, but also just knowing how I feel. And then being able to entrain yourself emotionally with other people. So there's other, there's greater mental health effects with uh, being able to adjust your interoception. And there's even within body by breath, there's a number of self-tests throughout the book. And one of them is actually a measure of your interoception. Mm-hmm. So there, there's lots of ways to travel through this softer side of performance that I think is very, very helpful for building is ne- excuse me, it's necessary for building true resiliency in the body. We have to examine this parasympathetic side of our being. And so body by breath gives you novel and really interesting ways to get curious about that, gives you evidence about it. And then it gives you uh, about a hundred different practices in the categories of breathe, roll, move, and yoga nidra, also known as non-sleep deep breaths. I'm very excited to see when the book comes out and it's, for everyone, you do a great job in the tests, assessments, and reassessing after you do whatever technique. So I, I'm very excited to see all of the breath exercises and the techniques that you have to share. Also go look at the role model too. There's so many other things we could have talked uh, talked about, but we'll leave it at that. We didn't get to your hip replacement, but I hope the hip is doing well. Is the hip doing well? Yeah, it's doing great. I, I, we we should do another podcast because I <laughs> we clearly did not cover everything that... Um, we, yes. we could possibly cover yes. and it's really fun talking to you, but yes, the hip is doing great. It's five years past. I mean, you're never the same after something so profound and it is a great teacher for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I love what I've learned. 
Yes. I wouldn't, I don't want another hip replacement, <laughs> but you know, like I'm a lemonade uh -huh. maker, so I've made lemonade from it. Yes. Yeah. We'll definitely do a follow-up podcast before we sign off. What's all of your handles on social media. You have a great YouTube channel with a lot of resources too. And also the book. Why don't you share all of that where you can get all of your products or find it? Yeah, we have a lot of free resources on our website, tuneupfitness.com. There is a very robust uh, blog and article section. We have a great article on self-myofascial release, the evidence behind it. There's one on the respiratory diaphragm. There's a great one on the vagus nerve. There's a really big one on my hip or not my hip, but yeah. on hips, Andrew. So mm -hmm. that's a great place to check out stuff. And then of course there are, um, you know, programs and for purchase things that we do. I also have an online classroom called Move, Breathe, Roll, um, mm -hmm. where I can take, uh, I take, you know, students from all over the world through new classes every week. And then we meet for mentor, uh, mentor discussions. My handle on Instagram is the Joe Miller. And we also have a tune up fitness handle on Instagram as well. I don't do the giveaways they do. So follow <laughs> us both. And then of course you can find us on Facebook at tune up fitness and I'm Jill Miller as well on, on Facebook. Awesome. Thanks for sharing all of that. I'll put it all in the show notes. I mean, there was a lot of great information here again, just the tip of the iceberg, but I mean, I love following you. Keep up all of the great work, sharing all of this knowledge with a lot of people. It's making a big impact on the world and all of our health and fitness in our lives. So thank you again. Any last words? Oh, no, I'm just, I'm so curious how you've been implementing the work. I have a big, you know, on my paper here next to is like, I just want to know how it's been impacting your people. So I would love to, maybe next time we talk, you can yes. go through some uh, case studies and we can talk through, you know, how you've implemented the work and changes that you've seen in your community, I uh, always love to to hear about success stories um, or, you know, if there are like just yeah. questions like, well, what could I do with this? <laughs> yes. I love that. Yes, we'll definitely set that up. But again, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. I know we're both really busy, but check out all the resources again. It'll be in the show notes. And thanks so much for joining me, Joe. Thank you. Take good care.